Good morning. <clears throat> I had a college professor who used to say that education was the only business where the customer doesn't want to get their money's worth, where students are always hoping that lectures would get canceled and that homework would get tossed. But I feel like maybe preaching and sermons are the same way, because no matter how short the sermon is, people always want it to be a little bit shorter. Well, we got our money's worth a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Mark preached. And I say that not just because the sermon was long, though it was, and not just because Pastor Mark did a great job of expositing uh, the text in Romans 6 for us, but he put on display for us some of his personal conviction. And anytime someone prepares to preach a sermon, it should always be the case that the sermon first goes to work in the heart of the person who is preparing, a, preparing it. And brother, you did a fantastic job of demonstrating that to us last time, so thank you. Um, <clears throat> we are going to pick up today where Pastor Mark left off. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, you can open them to Romans 6. We're going to spend most of our time, uh, time in Romans 7, but Romans 7 really uh, continues an argument that Paul started in Romans 6. So we're going to start there in Romans 6. So let's get our bearings on where we are. At this point, Paul is leaning really hard on the idea that believers... We were once dead, and now we're alive. Death reigned through Adam, and life now reigns through the grace of Jesus. Romans 5.18 One trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Adam sinned to condemn us. Jesus died to save us. In the flesh, we are dead in our sin. Not sick, not impaired, not hobbled, dead. In chapter 6, we learn that if we're in Christ, we are no longer dead in our sin. We are now dead to our sin. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. Where there was once death, now life. And this life comes not through the work of the law, but through the grace of Jesus won for us on the cross. And this leaves Paul with an interesting question that Mark covered for us in chapter 6. So check out chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And what was Paul's answer? By no means. Paul knows that the keen observer of his argument will hear this letter read and may say, well, that's interesting, Paul. We're no longer under the law, so I guess that means that we can just do whatever we want. And he says, by no means. And the language that he uses here is actually jarring to the point where if we translated it into everyday language in 2019, some of y'all might be a little offended by it. So no, freedom in Christ does not mean freedom to sin. Don't be silly, Paul would say. You were once slaves of sin under the law, but now you have become obedient from the heart, according to chapter 6, verse 17. 
Verse 18, having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. And Mark showed us from this text that there are only two options. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to God. That's it. Oh, you may think that you're free, sinner, but you're mistaken. You're a slave to that sin. The law isn't going to free you. It will only keep you down. Become a slave to God instead, Paul would say. So as we move into chapter 7, Paul's going to expand on his answer to the question that he asked in chapter 6, verse 15. Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? The answer, of course, is no. And he's going to continue to show us why in chapter 7. So read with me chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray. <clears throat> Fathers, we come to your word. We've already sung songs about what a great God you are. We've already confessed our sin. We've already come to you and admitted how absolutely needy we are, how desperate we are for you to work in our lives. And so, Father, as Tim prayed, we pray again. Come with us now as your word is read. We pray that it would feed hungry hearts who need to hear it that it would enrich our minds, not just for the sake of knowledge, but so that we might apply your word to our lives. God, we thank you. We know that this is a work that you want to accomplish in us, and we pray that you would do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so if you're an outliner like me, this one is pretty straightforward. The text itself has a really clear outline. Verse 1 states the principle that Paul is arguing. Verse 2 and 3 offer an illustration. And then verses 4 through 6 give us the application. So principle, illustration, application. So these six verses at the top of chapter 7 are continuing and expanding upon the argument that he began in chapter 6. <clears throat> so what's his principle? What's the principle here at the top of chapter 7? It's this, the law is binding on a person only as long as a person is alive. 
He says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. And the letter, of course, is to the Roman church. So his audience, whether formerly Jew or formerly Gentile, now Christian, would have some familiarity with the Mosaic law. So he says, you know the law, but don't you also know that the law is binding so, so long as the person who is supposed to follow it is alive? And if I'm one of these Roman Christians, I hear this argument from Paul and I say, yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. How exactly am I supposed to follow a law if I'm dead? Imagine that you're watching whatever the North Carolina equivalent of C-SPAN is, and a representative gets up and says, uh, I'm going to propose a, a bill that I would hope would become a law. We want to reduce the speed limit on the interstate by five miles per hour. Oh, and by the way, we're going to put a stipulation in that law so that if you're dead, you don't have to follow it. Well, of course, when I'm dead, I won't be driving. So what Paul is saying here makes perfect sense. <clears throat> Laws only apply to those who are alive. This seems obvious, but he's up to something here that we'll see when we go a little bit further. So time out on verse 1 for just a minute. We're going to come back to it. We're going to come back to this principle of his that the law is only binding until death. But let's jump into his illustration because it's going to help us understand even uh, more clearly what he's after here. So look at verses 2 and 3. Here's his illustration. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And it's, under, it's important that we understand the specific cultural context here around marriage. And so in preparation for this, I googled silly reasons for divorce. And I found that one man divorced his wife because she used too much toilet paper. <clears throat> one woman divorced her husband because he smacks when he chews his food, which, I mean, that's really annoying. Another man divorced his wife because she asked him how he takes his coffee. And you think, oh, that sounds so considerate. No, she asked him every single day for seven years, and he got sick of it, so he divorced her. And Googling this reminds me of how absolutely ridiculous our culture is. These are all extremely silly reasons. It's, it's sad. It's not actually funny. But guess what? Even most of the seemingly more serious reasons that people give in our culture for why people get a divorce, those are illegitimate too. Why? Because it's supposed to be till death do us part. Where do you think we get that, that marriage vow that's a part of almost every wedding, even if we don't honor it as a society? We get that from the Bible. Even if you do think that there are reasons that are short of death that would justify ending a marriage, I think we can all agree that death is a legitimate reason that a marriage would end. If a man's wife dies <clears throat> and down the road, he remarries, we don't all say, adulterer, right? He is free from marriage should his wife die. And even American culture agrees on that. 
But Paul, in using this illustration, he specifically speaks of wives here. Why? Well, that's because it turns out that in Jewish culture, the Jewish men had a really bad and really silly divorce culture as well. Not that different, really, than what we have today. Remember when the Pharisees come to Jesus in Matthew 19 and they said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They were asking because Moses had permitted men to divorce their wives and having been given an inch, they took a mile. But what does Jesus say? He says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the Jews had a divorce culture too, a divorce culture of which Jesus was critical, but that divorce culture only applied to the men. Women couldn't divorce for any reason whatsoever, but Jewish men could divorce for silly reasons. It's actually not that different even today in Near Eastern culture. Women have far fewer rights. Jesus says no one should divorce. Their culture said only women can't divorce. So even Paul, he has a correct understanding of marriage. I think we would all agree. But he specifically says here, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. And what is he doing? He's choosing a Jewish cultural example that no Jew, or even a 2019 American, really would have disagreed with in any way, even if they accepted the messed up culture of the day. So for the woman in the marriage, the only way out was death. And that's the exact illustration that Paul is looking to give us here. So a death must occur for her to be free from the law of marriage. A reporter once asked uh, Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife said, have you ever considered divorce? And she said, divorce? No. Uh, murder? Yes. Right? And so she even understood this as well. Death is uh, the only way out. So verse 3, wives, you live with another man while your husband is alive. You're an adulteress. But if your husband dies and you remarry, then you haven't violated the law of marriage. Death is the way out. So that's Paul's illustration. So let's go back to verse 1 to our principle. The principle, of course, is that the law is only binding upon a person as long as he lives. And again, if you read this argument from Paul, that the law doesn't apply when you're dead and you say that seems like common sense, then you're absolutely right. That's the point. Paul says the law, the Mosaic law, doesn't apply when you're dead. Don't you know that, Romans? Yes, of course they do. They understand that. So his overall argument that he started in chapter 6 is that even though we're not under the law but under grace, that doesn't mean that we're free to sin. It's the point he made in chapter 6, verse 15, and the point he made in chapter 6, verse 1, when he said grace is good, we like grace, but sinning so that grace may increase is silly. This is the, the overall argument that he's backing up now. So what does that have to do with dying to the law? Well, he tells us in verse 5 of chapter 7 that the law actually arouses our sinful passions. And he's going to say in chapter 7, verse 7, that the law also gives focus to sin. How do we know what sin is if the law doesn't tell us? 
How many of you would say that your awareness of sin in your own life has increased the more and more you've studied God's Word? Nobody else? Okay, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the pity hand raise. I appreciate that. I would definitely say that. The more I understand what God's law and God's Word say, the more I understand that I don't measure up to that. And when I first became a Christian and just began devouring the Bible, there were so many times I would run across something where it would cut me like a knife. God's Word opens you up to the scrutiny of yourself that you would never consider without it. A simplistic example. Imagine that you're driving down the road where the speed limit was previously unmarked and you suddenly come upon a sign and realize that you're speeding. What do you do? Whoa, I better slow down. Or, you know, maybe not, but that's me. Paul says that the law arouses our sinful passions. It doesn't just give focus to them. It actually arouses them. We're like little kids. When I tell my kids, hey, don't touch that. How many times have they done this number? Look me right in the eyes and touch whatever I told them not to touch. That's exactly how we all are when it comes to the law. It arouses sinful passions in us. There's nothing wrong with the law itself, but it collides with our flesh and arouses arouses and reveals sin in us. But for the one who has died to the law, the law has the power to arouse and diagnose, but it doesn't have power to heal. Imagine you go to the doctor with a sore throat and a fever, and you tell the doctor your symptoms, and the doctor says, sounds like you have strep throat. So the doctor orders a strep test and he comes back in and he says, hey, guess what? The test came back positive. So you should probably call the funeral home and start making arrangements. How are you going to respond to that? It's strep throat. It's a simple cure. Give me the antibiotics. And the doctor says, oh, no, we don't, we don't do that here. We just give the test. That's the law. It has the power to diagnose. It doesn't have the power to heal. For the one who is still, still in the flesh, that diagnosis just exacerbates the problem. It doesn't get rid of it. It just fuels the fire. So Paul has made that clear. So back to his question that he's asked in chapter 6, verse 15. It would be a mistake to say, well, the law arouses sin and we're dead to the law. So I guess we'll just be lawless. That's not what he's saying at all. But that, that's a setup to help us understand our relationship to the law, which he fleshes out in verses 4 through 6. And remember, this is the application. Principle, the law isn't binding on you if you're dead. His illustration is marriage. The law is just like marriage. Marriage only lasts until a death occurs. So too, the law is only binding on you until you're dead. So verse, verses 4 through 6. Likewise, meaning just like the wife whose husband has died and she's free from that marriage. My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You will be a slave to sin, or you will be a slave to God. You will be under the law, uh, the marriage of the law, or you will be married to Christ. But to get there, a death had to occur. This is just like in marriage, where if you want to marry somebody else, somebody's got to die. This is where the analogy breaks down a little bit, though, because the law here doesn't die. It's not I'm married to the law and the law dies, so now I'm free. No, it's I'm married to the law and I died, so now I'm free from the power of the law. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. Because Christ died for my sin, I am free to die to my sin. Death occurred, Christ first, then me, Jesus died, I died with him. So if you're a believer, that's your testimony. The law was your first spouse. You died, and you now belong to Jesus. You were living in the flesh, and now you are serving in the Spirit. And remember the question that led Paul here. Are we to sin... Because we're not under the law, but under grace. And what's the answer? By no means. But we're not married to the law anymore. We're not under the flesh. So we're free. You are free from the slavery to the law, and you are no longer married to the law, but you didn't die to the law in order to be single. That's not why Jesus died for you. You died to the law so that you might belong to him, to Jesus, to the one who has been raised from the dead. Why? For what purpose? Look at the end of verse 4. In order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like freedom. Freedom means I get to do whatever I want, right? By no means. You will be a slave to sin or a slave to God. Those are the only two options. Freedom from sin means slavery to God. But slavery to God is a good thing. And if you are a slave to God, you will bear fruit for him. When you're in the flesh, look at verse 5. Your sinful passions are were at work in you to bear fruit for death. And again, those are your only two options, bear fruit for God or bear fruit for death. Paul asks in chapter 6, verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed, your sin? For the end of those things is death. Now that we're in Christ and not in the flesh, we will do some of the same good, moral things of the law that we did before, but they will bear fruit for God now, not for death. Chapter 6, verse 17 puts us this way. It says that we are now obedient from the heart. 
And this is new covenant language. It should sound familiar to some of us. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 says, We have a covenant of the Spirit, not of the law. And verses 5 and 6 say, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And the most obvious example of new covenant language, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What's our relationship to the law? We don't attempt to save ourselves by following the letter of the law. It's written on our hearts. It's in us through the work of Jesus. We are obedient from the heart. We died to our flesh. That marriage is over. We are alive, married to Christ. We're God's people. And because of that new marriage, God remembers our sins no more. John MacArthur says that being released from the law does not mean that we have the freedom to do what the law forbids, but that we have freedom from the spiritual liabilities and penalties of the law. So how do we relate to the law? We're no longer under it, but we still obey it. Paul says the purpose here, the end of our marriage to Christ, is that serving in the new way of the Spirit, we might bear fruit for God. We no longer serve in the old way of the written code, which bore fruit for death. We no longer live under the letter of the law. But notice, there's, an ex there's that expectation here for believers that we might bear fruit for God. That is the aim of the Christian life, to bear fruit for God. And what is fruit? I mean, the most simple way that you can put it, it's the product of a connection to a life-giving source. And we get this great illustration in John chapter 15 where Jesus calls himself the vine. And he says that every branch should bear fruit. He's the, the vine, we're the branches. You don't have to be a vine dresser to understand how this works. If he's the vine, then we, the branches, are attached to him. And the fruit that we bear, the work that we do, those are a product of our connection to him. John 15, 4 through 7, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, 
you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I am in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. We only bear fruit for God if we abide in the vine, if we abide in Jesus. And if we abide in Jesus, that law is written on our hearts. And if that's the case, we will bear good fruit. Luke 6, 44 says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. You know a tree by its fruit. If you have a fruit tree that doesn't produce fruit, it's a bad tree. If you walk up to a tree and someone tells you that, hey, that's an apple tree, and you see oranges on it, guess what? It's not an apple tree. So how is your fruit, Christian? When someone looks at you, do they see Jesus? Your actions, the words that you speak, the things you spend your time on, the things that you spend your money on, your attitude, your work ethic, do those things show fruit for Jesus? If you claim to be a Christian, then the claim that you're making is that you're one who abides in Him. And He said that if we abide in Him, we will bear much fruit. Paul says that is the reason that we've died to the law, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Bearing fruit doesn't make you a Christian. You can do good things and not be a Christian. But being a Christian means that you will bear fruit. So how's your fruit? If you tell someone that you're a Christian, would they be surprised by that because your produce doesn't match up to your profession? Some of you, you read this. I wrote it, and I'm uncomfortable listening to uh, myself say it. We're thinking to ourselves, okay, so he's telling us how to spend our time and our money and how we ought to behave. That sounds like legalism. And remember Pastor Mark, he talked about legalism a couple of weeks ago. Legalism is bad. Legalism is when you emphasize behavior rather than emphasizing a heart change. Legalism is about what you do. It's not about what God has done. We don't believe that doing good stuff saves us. But again, we believe that if we are saved, our lives will reflect that radical reality. Think about what we're saying here. We're saying that we're all sinners, separated from God, and it's so bad that creation, and we're a part of creation, it's so bad off that God had to send His only Son in the flesh, God Himself, to die for us. How can your response to that be, well, you know, I said a prayer when I was a little kid, so... Eh. 
we're not saved by law keeping. That would be legalism. We're saved by the work of Jesus. But that should have a massive impact on the way that we live. It should change everything. As Pastor Mark said when he preached, when we get rid of legalism, that doesn't mean that we get rid of law-keeping. The believer is motivated to keep the law, to live morally, to bear fruit for God. It's just that our motivations are wildly different than the legalist or the person who is bound to the law in their sin. Our motivation is not do what's right. The motivation is love. That's what it means to serve in the new way of the Spirit. It means to love. We who are in Christ, those of us who have put our faith in Him, we live the way He's called us to as an expression of love. We don't look at the law of God and say, look at these rules that are made to keep us down. No. As those who are obedient from the heart, we follow that law now written on our heart, and we're obedient out of love for our Savior and our God. We follow God's law not as a book of rules to keep us down, but as a road map for how best to bear fruit for Him because we love Him. Let me paint a picture, and I'll close with this. Let me paint a picture to illustrate this. Imagine that you're married. And men, you have to really put on your imagination caps here because I want you to imagine that you're a married woman. So imagine that you're married, you're a wife who's married to a man, and that man is not a good man. And one disclaimer on this, this is in no way prescriptive in terms of how I think a woman in an abusive relationship ought to behave. This is descriptive only for the purposes of illustration. So don't hear something in this that's, that's not there. So imagine that you're married to an awful, abusive man. And this man has expectations that are insanely unreasonable. He expects breakfast every day, but not just breakfast. One that takes hours to prepare. And if everything isn't perfectly to his liking, he'll throw the plate of food at you. He comes home every day for lunch, and he expects a five-course meal for lunch. If it's not perfect, he hits you. Then he comes home at the end of the day, and he's expecting dinner to be ready when he walks in the door, even though he comes home at different times every day. And if a gourmet meal isn't sitting there waiting, but not sitting too long, because then it would be cold, if it's not perfect, he abuses you again. And this husband expects that at all times, everything in the house is spotless. And not just like normal clean, but like so clean that you could perform surgery in any room of the house. And he has extraordinary and arbitrary demands. One day, he wants the toilet paper roll facing out. The next day, he wants it facing in. The next day, he wants it folded into a point like they do at the hotels. And if you don't meet these ridiculous, unattainable standards, he tells you what a terrible wife you are. And then, for extra measure, he tells you you're ugly, 
and he has no idea why he married you in the first place. There is nothing that you can do to please this husband. And then one day, you get a knock at your door, and a police officer tells you that your husband was killed in a car accident on his way home from work. And there's grief there, because after all, he was your husband. But ultimately, you realize that you are now free from the oppression that you've been living under for so long. So you sell the house, you move away, and after some time passes, you meet a new man. And this guy is everything that your deceased husband wasn't. He's doting. He's loving. He cares for you. He pampers you. You get married, and it is legitimately happily ever after. You do so many of the same things that you did for your deceased husband. You cook for him. You clean for him and you serve him, but now you love doing those things. The motivation is wildly different. Your new husband loves you and you love him. He doesn't have arbitrary and capricious demands. He wants to make sure that you know that he loves you and he does everything he can to show you that. He cares for you. He sacrifices for you. You don't have to cook and clean to earn His love. He loves you, and that's the very foundation of your marriage. You cook and you clean not because there's anything to be earned by it, because you love Him. And that service, that fruit, is an outpouring of that love. Previously, you served out of fear. Now, you serve out of love. You do so many of the same things, but you do them for completely different reasons. So, Christian, should you sin because you're not under the law, but under grace? No way. By no means. When sin is your master, there is nothing that you can do to measure up. You can attempt to follow every moral rule, every law there is, and it will never be enough. The very acts of attempting to measure up are bearing fruit for death. Become a slave to God instead. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Bear fruit for God because he's, He loves you and He's done everything He can to show you that love. Let's pray. God, You are so good to us. And if we're honest, we have to admit that in our sin, we're constantly trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We often feel in our attempts to save ourselves that we don't do enough. And then 
when we do something that we consider to be good, we become self-righteous. Father, help us to realize we serve in newness of spirit. We serve as those who have been bought by Christ, as those who are the bride of Christ, as those who are married to Jesus. We serve not the letter of the law. We serve our great husband, the one who has done so much for us, the one who sacrificed everything because he loves us. God, help us not to be motivated by fear in serving the law or even fear of what happens if we don't measure up. Father, help us to serve out of love. Help us to serve adoringly and lovingly the Savior who has given so much for us as He demonstrated His love for us. We pray that You would help us bearing fruit for Him to demonstrate our love for him. And God, even as we ask that, we know that that's not something that we can accomplish on our own. We pray to you, our Father, in the name of Jesus, that that work would be done in us by the Spirit. Amen.